Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. Hello again, and welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. And I'm Juliet. And I'm here to introduce you to our bi-weekly sojourn into horror movies, where we talk about cool stuff like queer representation and badass women in movies. And we're going to cover all of that in today's film, which is 2022's Revealer, which is a Shudder exclusive. Yes, this film was made during the pandemic. And you can kind of tell based on the structure of the film, and I don't say that in a bad way. This is one of those examples, and we've had a couple on the podcast before, of directors really having to think about how can I keep making stuff, but do it safely, do it on a smaller scale? How can I use the restrictions that are in place to tell cool and interesting stories. And I think this is a really good example of that. Yeah, honestly, I feel like it forced us to consider an entirely new level of creativity when it came to horror films. One with like, you know, a cast of three total people. And you're having to COVID test everybody or keep everybody in a bubble. And you're also having to figure out how do I do effects in a way that is both cost effective because, I mean, let's be real, like movies were not making money during the pandemic. Right. Unless it went straight to streaming. They just weren't making a lot of money. People weren't going to the theaters, especially for those like first four to five months. And I know that I'm speaking kind of from the Midwest point of view because we had ours open after that. But there was a long period of time afterwards where if you're in a big city, they might not have been open for another six, eight. 10 months, you know? But yeah, we're also like shooting big gory sequences out of frame so that we can save money on our special effects and we're not having to involve more people in the production process. And then like making a really rich story with just a handful of characters. I think we've been forced to become more creative and dig deep into what kind of movies we're making with very, very, very limited cast which I think is really cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. I really like that in a horror film. Like, I like the big extravagant ones, but I also like to see sort of what people can do with really character-driven pieces where you have, you know, one or two people against whatever the threat is in a fairly claustrophobic space. I think that can be super, super effective. And it's a really good challenge, Mm -hmm. uh, storytelling challenge. Yeah. And having to do more with a very little, which I think we're a little spoiled now. I know that the pandemic was terrible for a lot of people, but it did reinforce our ability to order kind of whatever we want, (laughs) you know, like supply chain issues aside. And obviously this was beginning pandemic. So it wasn't like, you know, late 2021 where we were struggling. And if the producer and director had been kind of working ahead of time to get some of this stuff, but like really good, I keep using this word, crunchy set decorations that are cool and visually appealing, but you know, didn't cost a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, Like the peep show booths in this one. I'll just kind of give you a brief overview. Essentially, a sex worker and a religious like anti-sex work fanatic and anti-everything fanatic because she's like uber Christian or uber religious have to band together inside of a peep show booth to survive and chaos ensues. Yes. But the peep show booths that they use and the peep show itself, like the building that it's in, is like covered in cool 80s pornography and like neon lights and things like that. And then in the peep show rooms themselves, they're probably LED, but just like, you know, suspend your disbelief a little bit. But they're probably LED accents that are highlighting the walls, which give this really cool lighting effect. Yeah. So we have like these really cool, low budget, it's obvious that it's low budget set pieces that are used over and over again in the movie. And it makes it look really cool because the rooms are so interesting. You don't get bored. It's not just like a white room. It's like a decorated room. Yeah. And the cool thing about this movie is that it's so stylized in terms of the lighting that you feel and understand that we are in the 1980s. But I don't know that all of those set pieces were historically accurate, and I don't care, yeah. quite frankly. You know, it it gave the vibe of 80s. I'm sure there are people that would watch and be like, oh, you know, an 80s porn shop, 
you know, wouldn't have had this or wouldn't have had this in that year or that didn't happen until the 90s. And sometimes that is important in a movie, you know, to be that historically accurate. For this, it gave 80s vibes and that's all I care about. And it really put you in a place and in a mood and in this kind of seedy, flashy place that was a perfect environment for a horror film. So it was period enough that it worked for me. Yes, yes, I totally agree. And yes, it borrowed some uh, vibes from Stranger Things, I think. Juliet hasn't seen Stranger Things yet, but I think once you get into it, you'll notice a lot of like shared things. But it's part of that whole renaissance of 80s love. Yeah, Like we're getting to the point where the directors who are up and coming and getting a lot of attention and things like that are children of the 80s. And so those things are like very near and dear to their heart. And they want to stylize those and make those into really cool love letters to what they remember from the 80s. Because the 80s I've seen in pictures, at least in terms of my family, don't look anything like these movies or TV shows. No, no. Everything's like yellow and cigarette smoke stained. And there's a meme and it's about the early 90s, actually. But it's like, oh, you know, what everybody thinks your house looked like in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And it's like all of these cool, like geometrical, like quasi-neon, quasi-pastel colors, like that sort of 90s design pastiche that I think we all could instantly conjure up. Mm-hmm. And then it's like what my house actually looked like in the 90s. And it's like a shitty holdover 70s wood paneling and like just really, really awful decor. And it's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yep, my living room, or basically my entire house. Let me just give you a brief rundown of what it looked like in the 90s. Multicolored brown carpeting. Yeah. Like, ugh, it was awful. And it was like at least 30 years old when I was a kid. And then all of our walls were white, but my parents had the original drapes that were there from when my grandparents lived there because they lived there first and then my parents Uh rented it from the same dude. And they were like mustard yellow floor to ceiling drapes oh yeah and then we had like shears behind those because my dad was paranoid that people were looking in the windows all the time and then in the bedrooms it was that same mustard yellow color carpet yeah and then my parents bedroom had these like big floral pattern where it was like blue and green salt like big floral pattern shapes on the drapes it was awful Like, how do you decorate with crap brown, like shit brown carpet? You can't. Oh, yeah. I mean, when we moved into the house where my mom still lives in the 90s, it was all 70s throwback and it was that brown, but the drapes were that brown. Oh, God. Yeah. And the shag carpet was still there when we moved in, in like 1990 or 91. Yeah, the 70s shag carpet. Every bedroom had a different color of shag carpet. It was glorious. You know that meme that says, like, you know, X had to crawl so that we could fly or whatever? Uh. I feel like that with 80s shit. Yeah. Because, like, not everybody looked that good in the 80s. And the lighting was not on point and, you know, it was terrible. So, y'all kids who are like benefiting off the 80s and directors and stuff. You know, people in the 80s actually had to crawl so that y'all could fly. It's, you know, all of these films that are made like 80s style. And now we're starting to see a little 90s renaissance as well. I mean, even like some of the grunge fashion that's like coming back that cracks me up. It's all through the veneer of nostalgia. So everything looks seemingly cooler than it actually was although there's some 90s stuff that was pretty cool in my opinion <laughs> yeah i i mean not to poo-poo everything but like the thing that comes to mind most readily is uh low-rise jeans oh god like low-rise jeans will never return because everybody's in love with mom jeans and it's like yeah mom jeans that we had to go through this whole low-rise phase so that yep. everybody could be like oh no nobody looks good in low-rise yeah. And literally every time you move, you could blink your eyeballs and then you have to pull your low-rise jeans back up. Otherwise, they would literally fall onto the floor. Yes. What were we doing? Yeah. The early 2000s were not good for anybody who was self-conscious when it came to purchasing and wearing jeans. Yeah. Because high-rise was out. Mid-rise, out. Oh, yeah. If you wanted to buy mom jeans, they were going to make you look like you have never worn clothes that fit you in your entire life. Yeah. 
if this was the early 2000s, you were going to Walmart and buying Wranglers if you wanted mom jeans or anything that was like above your hip bones, basically. Oh, yeah. Pickens were slim. They were. They were. Yeah. We had to wear khakis in school as part of our school uniform. Of course. Which, of course, you know, I will never touch a khaki pant again in my <laughs> life. Uh, and we had to tuck in our shirts. And your options were either, you either had to basically, if you were a femme person, wear air quotes men's pants, mm-hmm. or you had to wear they even had low-rise khakis uh. at a certain glorious point in, like, the year 2000. Thank you, Y2K. Oh, my God. And we were supposed to tuck in our shirts. And, like, how? <laughs> how? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, God. Early 2000s fashion. Mistakes were made. There are some, like, famous TikTok people who, like, go back to that, like, early to mid-2000s. Like, I graduated in 08, but I went to high school from 04 to 08. And she'll, like, wear the clothes from then. Somehow this woman still has these clothes. And she's, like, my age, maybe a couple years younger. But she'll be wearing, like, the Aeropostale shirt. Yep. And then, like, the shell necklace. Oh, yeah. Or she'll be wearing a polo with the collar popped, like the Hollister polos. And I just had forgotten about how terrible the choices were. The options were just awful. Yeah. The other thing was, like, wearing your shirts, like two inches above your waistband so that you have like that bare midriff no oh that's back so let me tell you i wandered in to an urban outfitters fairly recently because i really like their home stuff Mm -hmm. yeah for sure and they don't sell much of that in the stores anymore but i just happened to be near one and i was like i'm gonna pop in and see if they have anything on clearance let me tell you there was no shirt of normal length Every single shirt was like midriff bearing. I'm like, why are we going back to this? I had to go shopping for real work clothes because I actually had to be in person for the first time in a long time. And I just didn't have any clothes. I was like, I could just wear t-shirts and cardigans. And then I was like, no, let me go and like actually try. Yeah. No, it's all crop tops. It's all like woven, like macrame, like crop tops. I'm like, okay. But what about like regular shirts? No. If you want to wear a regular shirt, then you're going to either have to buy a shirt dress or like a boyfriend shirt that makes you look like your gay auntie, you know, like, (laughs) like I'm in my painter face. I'm living on a cottage on the beach that like, I know I'm making assumptions, but I tried on a medium because Uh that's typically what I wear in shirts. No, it was like, okay, all right, I guess I'm Sybil Danning now. Like I'm only wearing that shirt if I'm allowed to go have like a painter phase on the beach. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Like, but if that does not come with a guarantee of I can go paint on the beach for a while, I'm not wearing it. Yeah, like I can't wear my gauzy shirts if I'm going to work, you know? Like <laughs> that doesn't give the impression of like I want to work. It gives the impression of like I'm drinking at two o'clock. Yeah. I don't know. I'm making a lot of assumptions there. But <laughs> in any case, in the 80s, we had to crawl so that y'all can fly. It's true. I actually didn't even live in the 80s. <laughs> I was born in <laughs> 1990. So like, what am I even talking about? But I was there. Yeah. <laughs> Juliet has the cred yeah. for that. So <laughs> anyways, we went off on a tangent there. I mean, it does relate back to this movie. The set pieces are really cool. The costuming is very cool. It's not like overly 80s. They're not like we have, you know, scrunchies and like tall socks or whatever that we've like bunched down around our sneakers and stuff. It's just enough to get the point across of what is happening. Yeah. But yeah, I really love the set pieces in this. I feel like the lighting and how well they decorated the peep show building, which is called Revealers. Yes. Hence why the name is called Revealer of the movie. Although that is kind of twofold. It's a double entendre. Yes. And I read in the trivia that that was the hardest part of making the movie was finding appropriate items to put in the sex shop because everything had closed down in Chicago for because of the pandemic. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And like vintage porn, like it's kind of hard to come by. Like, where do you even go to buy vintage porn? It's definitely more specialized. And yeah. I'm sure any business that would deal in especially vintage porn was not considered essential and so was shut down or relegated to the internet or whatever yeah and even that can be tricky like if you are a collector or you need it for set dressing like that can be a tricky internet search too you know and kind of a rabbit hole that you have to kind of make a choice like how far down the road do i want to go (laughs) for something like this 
Yeah, because like sometimes you can find Playboys in like antique malls and stuff. Yeah. But this is a sex shop. So like Playboys are typically found at like the gas station. Right. You know? Right. You can even find them at a bookstore now. But like in a sex shop, you want the hardcore stuff. You want like VHS tapes because this was 87. They have a couple of sex toys. They have some like really cool posters on the wall. They made it look really cool. They used a lot of neon, a lot of LED strips, which ended up lending a really cool, I think, vibe to the entire movie or like two thirds of it because then they end up getting into these underground tunnels and then you don't get the cool set pieces. But yeah, either way, I think also, you know, I know this was born out of circumstance, but not making the sex shop completely like over the top with a lot of like sexual imagery like not that there's anything wrong with that but it can pull focus away from the character or it can have an effect on a viewer that takes you away from the story that is being told Mm -hmm. and I think that that actually worked in their favor that it there was enough to establish an environment but you weren't distracted by what was on the walls yeah you know you knew where you were you knew, you know, this is this character's workplace, which, you know, we're going to get into, like, the way that the sex work is presented in this movie is very much, like, as work. And you're not, you know, trying to figure out what's on the wall or, like, ooh, what is, what is that over on the shelf, you know, mm-hmm. over her shoulder or whatever. Yeah, they did do a good job of that. And I keep giving them props for the lights, but, like, this is a sex shop and it's also, like, a sex shop that's on the edge of town you right. know this isn't like a hustler hollywood where there's like fluorescent lights and like a ton of people to help you it's like one dude at the front give yeah. him cash you know and then like a dark hallway that you have to go down and there's like drains in the rooms you know yeah. <laughs> like it's it's pretty seedy yeah exactly it's not as sad as some that i've seen but <laughs> it's definitely not like uh not a hustler for sure. Right. Yeah. I don't know if you've been in like a Lion's Den or a Hustler Hollywood recently, but they look like Walmart. It's so I weird. It. <laughs> Not recently, but I believe that. Yeah. I mean, the last time I went into like a legit one was pre pandemic. So, like, who knows what it looks like now? Yeah. But I went into Hustler and it was like, no, this is like Walmart. Well, I mean, even just like going to a Spencer Gifts these days, yeah. which is like mind blowing to me. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately, like, it's kind of a cool normalizing factor, and I'm not opposed to it. But it was just like, again, like being somebody that comes from like, you know, not so much 80s because I was a little too young, but like went to the mall in the 90s, like all the time. And like high school, you know, I can remember like maybe 2001, like being at the mall, like, you know, most weeks in the summer with my friends and you know, at that point, Hot Topic wasn't super controversial anymore. But I mean, I remember Hot Topic being controversial when they first opened in our mall here. So to have like, you know, Spencer Gift selling an array of sex toys now right out there in the mall where, you know, any person of any gender persuasion age has access to them is really quite revolutionary. Like it kind of blows my mind just from the era of mall (laughs) that I came up in. No, yeah, I totally agree with you. Like, I remember Hot Topic was, like, on the way out of just selling clothes when I was turned on to them, like, late middle school. Uh-huh. And obviously everything was way too expensive because, like, who can afford $40 trip pants at that point? Like, yeah. Nobody can. Unless you were getting them as a gift. And then you wore them to death. <laughs> you wore them every single day. And then yep. the, the back got all torn up because they were always inevitably too long. But anyways, I digress. Going to Hustler is no longer a, like, seedy, out-of-the-way situation. Like, you can get sex toys at Spencer Gifts. If you go to Hustler, it's a little bit more hardcore. But you're going to have overlap of the, uh, you know, not just, like, sex toys, but also, like, lingerie. Or there's, like, some fetish gear. I mean, not, like, hard, hardcore. But most of that stuff is relegated to online only at this point. But there's overlap. There is for sure overlap. And also... People aren't like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to Hustler. Oh, nobody can see me. I'm wearing my sunglasses and my hat. It's not like that anymore. Yeah. There are people that will like do demonstrations for you of oh, like yeah. using, you know, like, oh, look, this is what this thing does. This is what this particular toy does. And you're like, what? What is happening? Yeah. And I mean, I can't speak to like 
the sort of demographics that Hustler or Spencer, like what their ideal demographic is, but certainly like in our area also, the types of sex shops that we had up until, you know, these larger companies that have, I think, really changed their business model because of places like Babeland, which, you know, we don't have one close to here because we're in the Midwest, but like to create sex shop experiences that aren't just focused on cis het men and their pleasure. And, And to a smaller degree, I think it was unspoken gay men as well, like cis gay men. You know, and that would never be put out there. It was kind of the wink nudge that you all knew. But to be in a culture where sex shops, some sex shops, not all of them, are recognizing that they have a femme clientele as well, you know, and and different types of sexual experiences represented among their clientele. It's, uh, again, it's like quite revolutionary, like not to be like, it's going to change the world. But you know, because these are giant brands and capitalism, blah, blah, blah. But I do think it's cool, like how far we've come in that regard. Yeah, no, definitely. It's so interesting to see those like juxtapositions. I would say even in like recent years, like, yeah, even, you know, between 2013 and now, just like the past 10 years, it's been completely overhauled, which I think we should continue to demand like intersectional accessible like sexual experiences that's real life yeah Um, absolutely which completely not even what I had in my notes for this episode (laughs) me neither but that's okay (laughs) I did want to say really quick really the only three characters we have in the movie really the only three actors and characters are Cato AZ who plays Angie Pitarelli. She's our sex worker, peep show booth worker. And then we have Shayna Shruton, who plays Sally Mewborn. It's like Melbourne, but with a W. She's our religious protester. And then we have Bishop Stevens, who plays Ray. He's the owner slash proprietor of the peep show revealers store. And he also is a wrestler, a former wrestler. I thought he looked familiar. Okay. Yeah, he wrestled under in WCW as the Atomic Dog and then WWF as Ollie Stevens. Okay. Yeah. So the, a former, though. And then yeah. more recently, he's been in things like The Walking Dead and Empire and things okay. like that. So he's former wrestler, one of the uh, wrestler to actor pipeline uh, success stories. Yeah. There are so many failures in that <laughs> regard, but uh, glad to see he was uh, successful in yeah. that. Yeah, but that's really it. I mean, there's a stunt guy who plays Asmodeus later on in the movie, but we only see Asmodeus a couple of times. But Phil Bogdan played Asmodeus, and he hasn't really been in a whole lot. I think he is mostly like a production crew versus like acting. So they were probably like, hey, you're tall. Um, Can you come be this demon? And he was like, sure. Yeah. Put down his microphone, you know, put down his boom, took off his headphones and then put on his uh... true indie film style there. <laughs> I really that's probably exactly what happened. Yeah. You you're playing the monster today. <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, OK, cool. The movie starts out, you know, Angie is going to work. She calls somebody on a payphone, which I mean, payphones. Yeah. I'm sure that there are people right in this there. movie that like did not know what a payphone was. And I always find it amazing when they have one in a movie because I'm like, I haven't even seen one in a long, long time. There aren't many left. Like phone booths? Yeah. Like that's even rarer. Yep. Uh, Like payphones attached to structures, maybe I could see that more often, but like phone booths? Where do you even get that? Do they have to like order it and then borrow it? Or fabricate it. Yeah. Yeah, probably. But she calls someone on the phone. We don't know yet who it is. Um, it says she has to pick up an extra shift. And then she kind of has to traverse this like parking lot full of religious protesters as she's going into her workplace. And it's a moment that I feel like so many people can probably relate to for one reason or another. You see the same sort of like uproar. I mean, I've seen people protesting in front of sex shops before, but like you'll see the same kind of uproar now in front of abortion clinics. Yep. So I feel like that's a very relatable thing, like having to cross the picket line of people who are diametrically opposed to you in spirit and in ethics and things like that and morals, but still having to do it for one oh, yeah. reason or the other. Well, I mean, it's, you know, this episode, it's it's not quite 
Pride Month as we're recording this, but it's about to be. And this episode will come out, you know, at the start of Pride Month. And, you know, we know at our local Pride celebration, there are always protesters, you know, religious protesters shouting horrible things on a bullhorn every year, you know, and now it's become almost a game that the drag queens pose in front of them. And, you know, but yeah, that's a that sort of very fundamentalist, conservative, shouty protest is a very familiar sight at this point. Yeah. In and a lot of settings. Making judgments about just the mere fact that a person would enter a place like that because yeah. Lest we forget, abortion clinics also provide a lot of other services yes. for the community and for women's health or for folks who have uteruses, you know. And honestly, people who don't have uteruses, like all genders can be served at Planned Parenthood or yeah. women's health It clinics. is a healthcare facility. Yes, exactly. So like it's all encompassing and nobody knows why a person is entering, you yeah. know, except for the person themselves. So and the other part is like. Angie, while I do not want to shame anybody for going to sex shops because I'm totally sex positive over here, but like Angie's also going in to work. Right. You know, like she does enjoy her job and she has like fully reckoned with that, but also she's working. Like this is a necessity. She's entering her place of business. Yeah. I thought the whole portrayal of sex work in this movie was really great because it's not just like, sex work is work, but like it was really the nuance of what that means in terms of work that she simultaneously like says very vocally like that she enjoys her job, that it is a job she has chosen. It is her income. She also gets annoyed in the way that we all do, even those of us with jobs that we love about those little things that happen during the day, the personalities, you know, the boring parts or the less appealing parts of our work. And we capture all of that in Angie. And I thought that that was just really, really nice to see a full kind of three dimensional picture of a person whose profession is in sex work. Yeah, she's a normal, regular person, you know, this isn't like a showgirl situation where there's like, which I can't even believe I'm bringing up showgirls because what a movie. <laughs> but, you know, in that movie, there's like backstabbing and, and deceit and intrigue. And, and it's like, no, she's she's just going through the motions. Yeah. And there's a performance towards the beginning of the movie that Angie does. And it's kind of like a montage of Angie dancing in the peep show booth juxtaposed against the fact that the rapture is happening, like the end of the world is happening. Yeah. And it's very cool. And I thought that that was such a cool scene. And the music was like a perfect yeah. choice. And like that song by Gunship, Dark All Day is the name of the song. It has Tim Capello, who's playing saxophone, which you might remember him from Lost Boys. He's the guy who's blowing the saxophone on the stage. I just thought that was so cool. And But then like right bookending that at the beginning and the end it's like i can't get in the door ray the door's stuck again yeah and then afterwards she's like can you turn the lights on ray oh my god like can you let some people in <laughs> you know so we have this like really cool looking scene and then it's like right back to regular life <laughs> yeah yeah just the drudgeries of work like oh the door is stuck you know oh that thing that never works right is doing the thing it always does and it's no less annoying than it was yesterday exactly and you still need to fix it yeah like, it's not just gonna magically go away yeah I also wanted to give a shout out to casting and also the performance that Cato AZ does in the peep show booth Cato AZ is a femme person and they are a real shape. Yes. And I love that because I feel like so often, and I'll just use Showgirls again as another example. <laughs> that movie is about sex workers and strippers who are perfect proportions. Yes. And in this movie, Angie is a real person. Like she has roles and she, or like Ray mentions that she has a big butt and she uses that to her advantage. Like, those are things that she reckons with. And she's like, nope, I'm still a peep show worker. Yeah. And people still come and watch me dance and they give me money. And I love that because I feel like the movie era of having strippers that are like that perfect Barbie proportion and like perfect skin and like no rolls, no cellulite, none of that. It's like a very toxic, unrealistic expectation for when you actually do go to a strip club and you're like, okay, these people are also regular shaped. Yeah. Because not every single stripper can like work out six times a week and 
eat only green foods and things like that. Sexy, like provocative people who own their shape are also strippers. Yeah. Like no matter what their size are. Oh, yeah. And that can be awesome, too. Like just that experience of being like, oh, this is a person who's like completely in control and like confident of themselves and they want to share their bodies with me, I feel like is a magical experience. Definitely. Yeah. And And that's cool. I think we see that a lot more or we see it more prominently, perhaps in the burlesque world. And Mm -hmm. Kato AZ does perform burlesque, uh, which is really, really cool. That's a cool tie in. But that sort of celebration of the body, whatever, you know, shape or size or manifestation, it may come in that it is a celebration of of bodies, you know, right. And the variation thereof. I'm so proud of media getting to that point. Like, obviously, we still have work to do. But based off of like, who is popular, and also like, who's booking work and who we're seeing in films and stuff is no longer like, the fat girl or the bigger girl is the comic relief or she's only shoehorned in there to be a juxtaposition against all of the thin, attractive women. Like, that's not the case anymore. And I'm just so, so happy to see that because working through my own, like, body image journey, I can totally see how that was so cutting in my early life to see, like, only women who look like a Barbie doll on the TV or in movies or like in magazines or whatever and be like oh there's nobody shaped like me so i need to look like that right because that is the ideal right and now we're like actually being alive in your body is ideal yeah <laughs> so exactly. no matter what that looks like and so i'm just here for it i'm so glad even though this is a movie set in 1987 this is a person who's like very body positive and has a good body image and she brings that into her sex work and i love that I thought that was such a refreshing take on that, that we don't have like somebody who's, you know, six foot tall and like, you know, the perfect dimensions or whatever proportions. I was like, yes, yes. I'm snapping at that. (laughs) Here for it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I wanted to say too, the phone booth thing. I was watching this. Now, granted, this was filmed during the pandemic. We're in 2023. This is set in 1987. Angie has that phone, that public phone, like right up against her mouth. And I was like, oh, how many people have gotten sick from using using a public pay phone? Like, it's just so funny. Like, I don't even put my actual cell phone up to my face anymore. I just use it like on speakerphone. Granted, I try not to do that on public because anytime my phone makes a noise ever in public, I'm like, throw it, just get it away from me. Like, it's just the most embarrassing thing ever, like videos or phone calls or whatever. yeah, yeah. But she puts it like right up against her face. And I'm like, Oh, that's so nasty. (laughs) That's just one thing in 2023 we don't ever have to think about is like germs on public paper. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Yeah. Also, Chicago must have a very solid power grid because this movie is set in Chicago. The power doesn't go out for like a really long time. Like the rapture is happening (laughs) and we get like three trumpets through, you know, the rapture and the power stays on. And I'm just like, wow, that's amazing. Good on you, yeah. Chicago. <laughs> I mean, wh- I don't live in Kettering, but we live pretty close to Kettering. <laughs> and there, the power goes out like every time the wind blows. It's the same way in Yellow Springs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just like, wow, the rapture, like three trumpets of the rapture yeah. happen and the power is still on. Like, good for you, Chicago. Yeah, that's true. Power grid. I also thought it was funny. At the beginning of the movie, uh, there's a confrontation between Angie and Sally right in front of revealers. And they go back and forth. And, you know, Sally's just like saying all these really cutting and nasty things to Angie about how she is repulsive and blah, blah, blah. And then she says, like, you're seducing our men and corrupting their minds. And then Angie says, like, have you seen men? Yeah. (laughs) Why would you want them? Which I absolutely loved. I just thought that was hilarious. Just that line in particular, Sally saying that, like, you are corrupting our men's minds, like, you are seducing them to come there. I've always thought that that is such a weird take. Oh, I hate that take so much. It's like, did the sex worker drive your husband there? Did did she put him in the car? I'm just talking about it in a cis way, but did she force him into the car? Did she force him to fork over his money and drive to the sex shop? Like, no, that's such a weird take. Yeah. You are corrupting their mind. Like, I'm pretty sure the dude does not give a shit who it is that he's seeing, merely that he's doing it. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I hate about that is it pushes the blame off onto women. But it also... As per usual. <laughs> yeah, as usual. But it also, like, in terms of, like, you know, the patriarchy and toxic masculinity hurting men, it also is really reductive of men. Mm-hmm. Like, it takes away their agency to make their own choices or not you know, to imply and to reinforce this idea over and over and over again, like historically, that women are temptresses and, you know, they are of Eve and you can't resist a temptress. And it's like, well, you've just taken away that man's. And again, we're like talking in really, really like cis hetero terms here, Mm -hmm. but you've just taken away like that man's agency as well as that woman's agency. Like everybody loses in that scenario. Nobody is actually empowered and free to make their own choices about what they want to do you know the woman in that scenario is instantly wrong and Mm -hmm. scorned and other and is somehow you know diametrically set against other air quotes righteous women which i just hate anything that pits women against each other right and then the men are seen as you know this weird dichotomy that the patriarchy creates Men have to be both masculine and controlling and in control in all times, except for when it comes to air quotes lascivious women, and then they have apparently no control. Yeah, exactly. It's such a study in contradictions. Yeah, it's such a stupid double standard. And I feel like Sally puts herself like right directly in the middle of that because later in the movie, it's revealed that Sally hates Angie, not only because she thinks Angie is a sinner and all that, but also that Sally's gay yeah, and and that she's attracted to Angie, even though Angie is not attracted back to her. She says she's strictly dickly, (laughs) which I thought I've never heard that term before, but I thought that was hilarious. But Sally puts herself directly in the middle of that because she's both saying like, you women, you sex workers are seducing our men and causing them to come here and spend money here. But then simultaneously, Sally, who is truly attracted to women, is not doing the same thing. Right. It's like the thing where like the argument against co-ed locker rooms or whatever. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, men will not be able to control themselves because men are dogs or whatever. And it's like, okay. But there are female or femme, you know, locker rooms and there's mask locker rooms and y'all don't do that inside. Like gay men don't automatically like tackle men that they see who are nude in the locker room. Yeah. And, you know, it's just such a strange dichotomy to be like, no, if you have both sets of genitalia in the same room, it'll be chaos (laughs) and you just can't even handle it. And then it's like, okay. So what's the expectation? Right. Like, right. Because obviously we're not taking into account that sexuality is an entire spectrum and that there's all sorts of types of attraction, number one. And number two, like you're putting this all on like women that you assume are trying to be some type of way for the male gaze. Yeah. But that lesbians or, you know, in this particular instance, like, a lesbian is immune to those things. Right. And that they're not going to go after it. Like, what? What kind of confusing backwards hoops do you have to go through in order to make that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make sense. And and you almost see Sally working through that throughout the movie, like, especially when we get the revelation that she's queer. It's like she is almost blaming Angie at first. Like, well, you know, I know what you do in there and you're writhing around in your body and it has an effect on me, even though I've never actually seen it, you Mm -hmm. know, like it's affecting me. Just the thought. Just the thought of it is, you know, setting me, air quotes, astray. But then as we sort of kind of settle into this revelation, Sally starts to talk about, well, actually, you know, this is something I have known about myself since I was, you know, a little girl. And, you know, she starts to tell, you know, a story of her kind of queer awakening. And we get to sort of witness in a very small way, her kind of coming to terms like nobody made you gay. This isn't something that someone has done to you. You are gay. That is who you are. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if it's Sally or, you know, the slightly risque painting that she was referencing of Mary Magdalene. Like, 
you just are. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's a sex worker. It doesn't matter if it's a video or, you know, a, you encounter a person in real life and you're like, wow, I'm like very attracted to this yeah. person. It doesn't matter. We see her kind of move through those hoops in her head and get from like self-loathing to like the beginning stages of acceptance and then like accepting Angie as a friend because Angie, although she doesn't like specifically shoot sally down in terms of because sally didn't even proposition her right but sally perceives the way that angie is looking at her as a judgment of the fact that she's gay versus a judgment of the fact that she has been awful to her in spite of being gay yes so i thought that that was a very interesting exchange between the two of them between sally and angie and then angie saying like no i'm not judging you i like i only date cis men However, I just can't believe that you would have been so judgy of me when you have your own like self-proclaimed sins that you're dealing yeah. with. Like maybe you need to get more comfortable. She even says like you need to be more comfortable with yourself before you start casting judgment against other people. Yeah, I really loved that moment because there was a lot of care in the writing to really make clear like no Angie's not judging Sally for being queer at all. She's judging her for being a shitty person to her. You know, she's judging her based on her behavior, you know, and her hypocrisy. And I thought that the writing made that super, super clear. I also really liked that they didn't go the route where they ended up together or kissed or there was some kind of implied romance or mutual attraction because I feel like, it would have been too easy. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it would have diminished the journey that Sally has just begun, mm-hmm. you know, of, yep. of sort of accepting her queerness and who she is. And rather than it just being like, oh, well, you're going to reveal you're queer and now you're with the hot sex worker that you've been lusting after, you know, the end. It's like, no, you made this revelation and here's a person who is accepting you but also challenging you to be better and they're with you in friendship and in allyship and Mm -hmm. like the end is the start of her journey yeah you know in as much as it's going to be (laughs) right yeah yeah we'll we'll get to the ending i did think it was really funny when eventually they break through the floor of the sex shop and they get into these like bootlegger tunnels and there's a part where Sally's like, well, which way do we go? And Angie's like, I don't know. I'm not a chud. And I just thought- <laughs> it was I, so good. <laughs> I felt like I had to say that because we did cover chud in a prior episode. Yes. And she's like, of course, you don't know what a chud is. Okay. Which like, yeah, Sally's not going to be watching chud. Yeah, no. <laughs> Angie's like, well, I thought that HBO would be a better investment than buying new sneakers. And I mean, yeah. She's not wrong. <laughs> yeah. HBO is a good investment. Yeah. I mean. I'm watching Barry right now. It's getting ready to be finished on Sunday. And like, I don't know if you've seen any of it, but I'm... Of course not. It's modern television. What have I seen? (laughs) Are we doing it for the podcast? Then no, I haven't seen it. (laughs) I'm just saying like Bill Hader has directed quite a few of the episodes. They're incredible. He's such a good main actor. And I'm getting to the phase of my life where I'm like ready for those slow burn shows where they really take a lot of time and effort and care to like build up. But why I'm saying that is I think Bill Hader should like try his hand at horror. He should. We've seen so many successful movies that had a comedian or somebody who typically plays, you know, comedic roles turn into these like amazing crunchy yeah. horror directors like i'm just thinking jordan peele right now but i'm sure that there's other oh there are yeah yeah there's a lot of them so and bill Hader's favorite movie is house so like he has a criterion collection like when they did a review when he was there at criterion and they did that like little film the shirt he was wearing was the house shirt like he loves it that much well and he was in it yeah yeah you. and it was it was bill really Hader. good <laughs> So yeah, like Bill Hader, if you're listening to this, please become a horror director. At least like just try it out. Yeah. Just saying. But yes, I thought that was funny. The Chud off the cuff uh, mention, like you have to kind of be in the know to know that one. And go listen to our Chud episode because that is an 80s movie that 100% got slept on. Yes, it's so true. Speaking of creatures... Let's talk about those snakes, mainly. Oh, yeah. The lampreys. Yeah. Well, they, I mean, they're like snakes, but they look like... They're fleshy snakes. Flesh which is colored. so unsettling. Multiple eyeball yeah. snakes. 
Yeah. So like Osmodius, we see a couple of different times and, you know, he's your typical demon creature, you know, creepy imagery, horns, blah, blah, blah. He's great. He looks great. Like not diminishing Mm -hmm. his look at all. He was great. He was not particularly scary to me because it was the expected imagery. Like if you've seen any number of, you know, sort of demon-based horror films uh, or Constantine, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, okay. Yes. Drawings, photos, you know, anything that you've seen that depicts a demon, you're like, yep, checks the boxes. Yeah, this thing looks like the thing I expected to look like, and it it is scary and otherworldly. Those snakes, however, (laughs) they refer to them as snakes, but they are much more like eel lamprey mm-hmm. combinations in that they are slithery yeah. things but they're fleshy not scaly and ugh. and they have like teeth like sucker yeah. si- like a weird diamond situation yeah it deeply remi- unsettling it reminded me a little bit of Dreamcatcher. have you ever seen that one yeah the lampreys and that not the same color but sort of like that same the little alien like sucker things yeah there's a super unsettling scene in Dreamcatcher where they're where uh the guy's trying to keep one in the toilet like he's sitting on top of the toilet but he also is desperate for a toothpick because he's trying to quit smoking so he's trying to like keep the toilet lid down and get one of the toothpicks that's not covered in like fuzzy blood which is like the whole thing in the movie but that's what it reminded me of but anytime I see those things especially when they're trying to go in your mouth which is what happens to Angie one of them like slithers up Sarah and then jumps into Angie's mouth and tries to go down. Nope. Yeah. Straight up no. Yeah. And let's be clear. You can totally, you know, you can draw all of the penis analogies that yes. you want to. And like, that's real and that's legit. And that works in this film completely, especially with the premise of the film. Absolutely. 100%. But even without the penis thing, these are just deeply like icky creatures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so for gross. sure. They're they're disgusting. And like some are bigger than others. And like yeah. Sally gets wrapped up by one. But then there's a scene where Angie's like walking through the tunnels and there's like a whole mess of them just like slithering around. And we actually see them when the credits are rolling, too. Yes. It's like, what is happening? Yeah. I hate those things. Do not like yeah, no, I will say like in conjunction with that, some of the special effects, like not the practical effects, but like the CG effects were a little dicey. Um, sure, yeah. Props to a small film production, though, because like you can't have it all. You can't have Marvel level effects and also with three people like you just yeah. can't have that unless you're Disney, in which case you can. But right. this is clearly not a Disney production. We can't all be Disney. Yeah. So it's like a little sketch sometimes. And like, I will say, although the lighting of Asmodeus was like cool, it did leave a little to be desired, I think, in terms of the demon design. But I'm also not religious. So like just merely like the crushing guilt and weight of like living biblically does not scare me. Right. So I needed more in terms of the demon. And also, I think the other part is there are times when he's too well lit like light him more dramatically i think but small potatoes really yeah like i understand i can juxtapose that with the fact that it's a very tiny production so yeah and it's also like ultimately i feel like the demon is a little secondary yes you know story wise and like takeaway wise from like these two people that Mm -hmm. we're with you know like yeah the demon is the ultimate threat but really we're on this journey with the two of them and the demon. You know, I, I saw a couple of reviews that were complaining that like, well, what triggered the rapture and why? And we need more information about the rapture. Actually, we don't. Yeah. Is my take on that. Like, I'm just one of those people that like, as much as I love an elaborate backstory, you mm-hmm. know, and a really like intricately built world in a movie like this, it's inconsequential. I don't yeah. care or need to know or I don't need to see any more of the rapture than we saw to establish that it was happening. Like, I really am invested in these characters, you know? Yeah. And yeah. that's the most important thing to me is learning about these characters and, like, being with them on the journey they're on. I don't need the additional context of what's happening above ground while they're in these tunnels. Yeah. And the other part of that is when, like, the credits are rolling, we see that they are not the only ones that are having this struggle. Yeah, let's talk about that because I yeah. I kind of love it. Yeah. So like the end of the movie, 
we see Angie and Sally have kind of bested the snake penis things and they've bested Asmodeus. Well, I mean, for the time being, they cut off his head, but they're like not sure if he can die. They can still hear him. Trumpets are blowing, you know, chaos is ensuing outside, but they've gotten to these doors and Angie says, she says like, this feels like the sanctuary. This feels like where we need to be. So they walk through the doors and then we don't, we see that they go down another set of tunnels, but that's it. That's all we see. Yeah. And Sally kind of says this like cryptic thing, like, well, what if, and then she's like, no, I'm being silly. Let's just keep going. Yeah. And then after that, when the credits are rolling, we see that we're in a labyrinth of caves underground. Like the rapture has actually happened and all of the earth has sunk below the surface and it's like a hellscape and there's demons and all this shit. And everybody who has survived to this point is like making their own way through their own trials and tribulations in this labyrinth. So like the whole thing about like, well, why did the rapture happen? Like who gives a shit? Everybody is doing the same thing. Yep. We're seeing this tiny subsection of two women who are diametrically opposed to one another getting together and like, both helping the other survive against their own better judgment or their own better sense, I guess. Like, they don't decide, well, I'm going to leave that one behind and step on her back so that I can get to safety or get to whatever it is that I'm seeking. Sally, her church, Angie, her nephew, who she's taking care of like a son. But they come together to, like, get to the next step. And then we see that this kind of thing is happening everywhere. Yep. So, like, the whole why is the rapture happening thing? Totally irrelevant. Yeah. Does not matter. It's the matter. end of the world. Who gives yeah. a shit? Yeah, exactly. And I love that we don't know what happens in the end to yeah. them. Mm-hmm. I love a well-done, vague ending. Not all vague endings are well done, but mm-hmm. I love a well-done one. And I think this is a well-done one because really, like, first of all, you have that moment where they open these doors that are allegedly the church doors and you just see a brick wall. At first, you don't realize that it's a hallway going off to the other side. And that moment of, like, anticipation and almost disappointment like oh it's just a brick wall is like kind of crushing you know Mm -hmm. because you've been with these people for you know an hour and a half but then to have them go down that next hallway and then that pan out to the labyrinth like you don't know did that hallway lead to some kind of ascension did it just lead to another part of the labyrinth or another like we don't know and that's great you know like it's kind of like if you want to be the sort of optimist in it, they completed their trial and proved themselves worthy and got to come by some good end. If you want to be a pessimist or a realist or a nihilist, no, they're just, you know, enduring further torment someplace. Yeah. And that's great. Yeah. I love that sort of ambiguous ending because the whole time we're talking about like good and evil, we're presupposing in this world that the biblical like end of days is real yeah. and that we're actually going through these judgments. But Sally has not been raptured. Like, and I don't know where that's supposed to happen in terms of trumpets or what have you, because I'm not super up on revelations because I don't care. <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen. Like, I mean, I care like, that other people care about. I don't care about it in terms of myself. I'm like, whatever. Rapture happens. It happens. Well, here's the real question. Did we witness anybody actually getting raptured in this movie? Right. Yeah. And uh, no, what we did see, though, is people rising from the dead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like Ray, uh, unfortunately, poor Ray, he gets his tongue ripped out and then he dies and comes back to life and then Sally has to kill him again. But one would assume that if the rapture was going to happen, that even if Sally didn't get raptured, all those other righteous assholes in the, yeah. in the parking lot, none of them got raptured either because they're trying to run into the sex shop when yep. everything's going down. Yeah. So just saying, what the hell? I really did like that ambiguous ending. Like, we don't know if Angie ever made it to David or if David is even still alive, but like, neither of them can even think about that they're just like what's the next step right let's just go through these doors and also that like strange like mechanism thing that sally used to open the door i was like that seems biblically or like you know in terms of um mythology it seems significant yeah oh yeah yeah because it's not just like a door handle or like a creaky door it's like a some sort of like clanking gear situation it was definitely a clue that there was not all was what it seemed with that door that the you know and they talk about it a little bit they were like well this church is a modern church why would it be part of the tunnel system blah 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 so you're starting to like 
throughout get more and more information that like, oh, no, all is not what we understand it to be. Yeah. Overall, I really liked it. Um, It's a Shutter exclusive, so you can see it on Shutter right now. You can also buy it on Amazon, but like if you have Shutter, just go watch it. Yeah. I don't know if I'll have to watch it immediately again, but it wasn't that type of like ambiguous ending where I need to go back and watch through the whole thing. But it was fun. I really liked it. There is a comic book based on it. Oh, cool. um, Because two of the writers are actually comic book writers. Tim Seeley and Michael Morecci are both pretty established comic book writers. They write horror comics and are kind of like with the major indies. And they worked with the uh, director, Luke Boyce, on this, again, during the pandemic, kind of banding together and thinking about like, what's something that needs perhaps more nuance than the comic medium can provide like what is a character study that we can do that requires the subtlety that you can't do in comic books but Mm -hmm. that we can pull off you know in a pandemic shooting setting oh cool and they didn't end up doing comic too I did also just want to underline, I should have mentioned it earlier, but there's a moment before Angie and Sally make it into the tunnels under the sex shop where Angie says, I'm just going to paraphrase it. Essentially, she points out that the folks who typically cast judgment on those who do sex work are the ones that don't have to struggle. Like they actually have time. They have time to cast judgment on other people and reflect on and be in everybody else's business except for their own because their life is set up enough or they have enough money or time or whatever to be able to do this. And I was like, that is such a good point is that when you see folks who are protesting out in in front of an abortion clinic, these are not people who are like struggling for their next meal typically. These are like old white dudes who are retired and all they have is time to sit on their truck with like pictures of fetuses you know to terrorize young women going or young men for that matter going into an abortion clinic yeah well when you think about it it's like until that line came up i didn't consciously think about it but like yeah you know here it is whatever day of the week it is and angie is going to work going to her job picking up an extra shift because she needs the money she has people depending on her We don't know what Sally does for a living. You know, a job is never mentioned, but she is spending her day. She is choosing to spend her day protesting. Yeah. So obviously she doesn't have the same kind of immediate, at least, need for income that Angie does. So I thought that that was a really nice line because it definitely made me actually stop and think about it for a second. Like, oh, yeah, that is true. It is a privilege to be able to do that. Yeah, it's absolutely a privilege to be able to go and have a protest in front of a place, especially because those protests, Angie points out, like, she's there all the time. Yeah. Like, this isn't like, okay, we scheduled it for this day, and then we're not going to do it for the other days. Like, no, this is a constant thing. And all of the people that are with her are also always there. And if I think about that now, like, the people who are hardcore protesters at, like, abortion clinics, which is the one that comes easiest to mind right now, are old people they're middle class or upper or or, uh whatever i'm not even going to use the class structure because that's whatever but people who make enough money that either they don't have to work anymore they're living off of retirement or their spouse or partner is the one who is making all of the money to allow them to be able to do that yeah in one way or the other they're financially economically set enough that they don't have to go work on a day-to-day basis they can come and protest every single day yes which is just and buy those awful like stand-ups and poster boards and shit that they have that's expensive yeah like what the fuck yeah art supplies are expensive (laughs) y'all yeah god so it's printing (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't know they have like terrible awful hateful arts and crafts day apparently yeah and yeah So I just thought that was like such a astute observation on Angie's part is like, must be nice to have all the time in the world to judge everybody else. And I'm like, damn, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yep. Worry about yourself. Don't worry about anybody else. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. What are we watching next time, Juliet? So our next episode comes out on um, Juneteenth. So we are going to focus on a Black director. Really, really excited to be watching Remy Weeks' film, His House, which came out in 2020. You've seen this one. I have not seen this one. Focuses on 
the experiences of refugees from South Sudan. Uh, and it's a horror story centered around that community. I'm so freaking excited. I watched it during the pandemic and it scared the absolute shit out of me. And I remember I'm, you messaging me. Like immediately as soon as I was yeah. done. I was like, listen, if you haven't watched this, it's going to rock your world. Yeah. And Juliet hasn't gotten a chance to watch it. So I'm really excited. I haven't watched it again because I wanted to kind of like let it out of my system. Yeah. But I remember like legit like covers over my eyes like scared for this one so i'm very excited to be able to think about it critically and not just like necessarily absorb it but like be able to actually think about the things that are happening in the movie because it does deal with the black experience of refugees in england so very excited Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We're Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Tonight.